I'm coming out about the same time, too, and about right here. And he kind of rushed up on me a little bit, and that's when I just pushed him. Boom, boom, boom. And he started going out toward the shed. I don't know how many times I shot him, but I just just kept right on going. Boom, boom, boom. And he just lay in there. My name is Madison, and you are listening to or watching Who's Knocking, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Um, I took one week off last week, and that was great. I had uh, kids' birthdays and kids sick and bullshit bullshit, so uh, I just couldn't get my shit together last week. But here we are. Um, Today's episode is regarding a man named Thomas Randolph. Um, I don't know how many people will know about this man. If you're a big fan of Dateline, it's likely you may have heard of him. This case is still technically ongoing. um, And I kind of found it whilst on Reddit, somebody had made a post about uh, how they were gonna be homesick and wanted to know Um, If anybody had any good Dateline episode suggestions, subjections, suggestions, Um, and this was one of them, and it's a pretty cray story. Very classic Dateline, but like on crack. And no, I have never smoked crack, but what I imagine crack would be like. Dateline producer Dan Slepian has spent close to 15 years tracking the whereabouts and criminal cases against Thomas Randolph. Dan has aptly begun to call Thomas the Joe Exotic of true crime, Um, and I think that is mostly due to his hair and personality. Joe spent some time with the Las Vegas police from 2002 to 2004 um, doing Dateline-related things with them, Um, and so he got in pretty close with some of the guys down there. And so the night that this case kind of really came to fruition uh, in 2008, Dan got a call from somebody on the squad who said that he may have a story of interest that was just unfolding literally that day. Um, And to this day, this case has yet to be resolved, and Dan and his team have uh, been there through everything and have gotten to film um, the detectives who really discovered the the meat and potatoes of this case um so it's been a really interesting situation for dan and dateline that they kind of got to follow along very a la like the staircase or paradise lost type thing um where most dateline episodes are after the fact this is this it's a dateline series that is three episodes long called the widower and um it's like in real time which is exciting, I guess, and interesting. So this is the story of Thomas Randolph, a.k.a. the Joe Exotic of true crime. On May 8th, 2008, in Las Vegas, Nevada, a 911 came in at approximately 8.45 p.m. The guy's still in the house. 
you know? So he's in a garage. He pushed me by and ran on out. I know him. He was ripping me off. He started to rip me off. Do you know what his name is? Uh, Mike, I don't know if I see him. Where's the guy you shot? He's in the garage. He was running out the garage as I was getting out, as I was coming in. Okay. Is he, is he dead or what is he? I don't know. Okay. I just shot him a bunch of times as he, he had a gun. Okay, let's focus on your wife. Who shot your wife? He did? Uh, he did. The man who called was Thomas Randolph, and as you heard, he was calling because his wife Sharon and him had arrived home after going out for dinner on a date and unknowingly interrupted a burglary at his home. The intruder, or the burglar, shot Sharon, and it was hearing the gunshot that sprang Thomas into action. Um, We'll find out later. He was still in the garage when she... Uh, had gone inside the house so she had been shot and he heard the gunshot went inside and was able to shoot the intruder with a gun that he had in the home what a hero deserves a medal clearly when the police arrived sharon and the intruder who was quickly identified as a man named mike miller were both confirmed dead there were no witnesses besides thomas randolph and a man who lived across the street who heard the gunshot he didn't witness anything but he heard the shot come in Now, at the crime scene, Mike Miller was found inside the garage. There was a ski mask lying on the floor near the body, as well as this big open bag of stolen goods. It was a bunch of things that were found uh, that were found to have originated inside their home, um, jewelry, electronics, etc. And if everything were to be taken at face value here, there was no question what had happened. This was clearly a burglary that was interrupted and turned homicide. Sharon was found inside the home in a hallway. She was lying near her own purse and a takeout bag full of food from the restaurant that they had just uh, been to. It was clear she'd been shot just moments after walking through the door. Every indication was that this was a robbery that the couple had walked in on. But as we know, things are not always as they seem. So Thomas was interviewed that night, of course, and he told detectives that he actually knew Mike Miller. He had hired Mike to do some work around the house as like a general handyman type guy. Um, And so he'd been doing work for him for a while now. And he said that Mike knew that they would be out of the house that evening. And uh, he didn't know that it was Mike because he was wearing a ski mask until after he had shot him. Um, but he did say regardless, he would have shot him anyway. Uh, we'll find out later that, uh, Thomas Randolph really likes guns, so he's, he's a big shooter. Um, he was, he was, though, shocked to find out that it was Mike, whom he considered a friend at this point. I'll go into a little bit about Sharon Randolph now. So Sharon Randolph was 57 years old. She had one daughter named Colleen and one grandson. And at the time of her death, Colleen was expecting her second child, a girl. And Sharon was very thrilled about this. She was very thrilled to have a granddaughter finally. Um, Colleen was five, uh, four or five months pregnant. 
Sharon was a single mother from New Jersey, and she and her daughter had moved to Las Vegas so that Sharon could find some better work opportunities. She was a hairdresser by trade, and she was able to find a good job in Las Vegas and set up a nice little life for herself and Colleen. She bought herself a house, and things were going well for them, but she obviously wanted to find herself a man. Um, Sharon and Thomas, they met on Match.com. He was an out-of-work special ed teacher, according to him, from Utah, and he had a long, luscious, scraggly mullet and a pretty eccentric personality. He claimed that he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He was an ex-truck driver, an ex-carpenter. You name it, he did it. They seemed to be pretty happy together to begin with. They did a lot of adventurous things. They traveled. Um, Thomas was a fun guy. He had a boat. Um, he was pretty great to Sharon. He treated her well. He was romantic. And I mean, look, who wouldn't like a slice of this absolute dreamboat? I have to say it's the two-tone crimped mullet for me. Am I right, ladies? But there was a lot about Thomas Randolph's past that nobody knew, um, which we will get to. Not very long after they began dating, Sharon and Tom went on a cruise together. They are adventurous as fuck and they love traveling. So they were happy to be going out and about and whatever. Um, but they came back from that cruise married. Sharon's friends were shocked at how fast this all went down and how quickly she decided to get married to him, but I guess everyone just decided to try to be happy for her. Now, can anybody, can anybody see where this is heading? Of course, like all of these stories tend to go, Thomas was a great husband for all of about three seconds, and then his true colors began to show. They began to start shining through his long, sassy mullet. It's kind of unclear in what specific way Thomas was shitty to Sharon, but we'll see some evidence in a bit that indicates that Sharon feared Tom. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here, guys. There were two homicide detectives who were put on the case, and that was Rob Wilson and Dean O'Kelly. Now, these two are thick as thieves. They're kind of adorable. They are a lean, mean, crime-fighting duo from Las Vegas, and they were featured heavily in the Dateline series, and they've been interviewed at length about this case, and it was, it was it's them that uh, the Dateline folks kind of follow along to, you know, investigate this case. And I, I think at first, Rob Wilson was actually on vacation when they started, so it was just Dean who started, but then when Rob came back, they, you know, all hands on deck and they're killing it. So these guys were suspicious of Thomas Randolph pretty much right away. I mean, he's a suspicious guy. Um, so about one week after the shooting, they asked Thomas if he would participate in a walkthrough video of the crime scene to go over exactly what happened. Take a look. I open it up. I get right here and Sharon's laying in the floor face down her head's just barely i mean barely in the bedroom with that I said sharon sharon i thought i just seen like a shadow or 
something over this way. I'm coming out about the same time too and about right here. And he kind of rushed up on me a little bit and that's when I just pushed him, boom, boom, boom. And he started going out toward the shed. I don't know how many times I shot him, but I just, just kept right on going, boom, boom, boom. And he's just laying there and then started coming back down this way. He wasn't moving, he, uh, some noise. What are you doing when you're doing this? I'm just kind of trying to see if anything else is going on. You know, like there's anybody around. I called 911. They have a conference, his wife was shot in the head, he needs medical advice. Sir? Yeah. Is she awake? No, no. Okay, let's focus on your wife. Put her flat on her back. So I tried to roll her over several times and I couldn't get her over. Okay, put her flat on her back. And about the third time it jerked enough that she got up kind of straight up and I could just kind of push her over. Okay, tilt your head back, listen, okay? Okay. Metro, tell your units to go in any way they can. Now, as you can see, Thomas went all in on the walkthrough. He really committed himself to the role. He did not spare a single sound effect or detail. It was quite the performance. Between the first interview and the walkthrough, Robin Dean began to notice a number of things that did not add up. One, during the 911 call, he claimed that he didn't know how it happened, he just heard the shot. Um, as we recall, he was, they pulled into the garage, Sharon had gone into the house, he stayed in the car for whatever reason, that's not crazy, um, and because of hearing the shot, he then went in and ended up shooting Mike Miller, the intruder. But later in the walkthrough video, he said that he found Sharon lying there after she'd been shot and he specifically said that he didn't hear the shot because he was, quote, really deaf. Hmm. Two, the timeline did not really make sense. So here's what was said and what we know to have been true based on mostly CCTV footage. They had dinner at a casino slash restaurant and that is confirmed on video. Uh, they stopped at a gas station after dinner. They're seen there on security footage as well. Um, they left the gas station at 8.26 p.m. They pulled up at home at about 8.30 um, and Sharon immediately went inside and got shot. Um, Thomas was parked at that time. The neighbor who'd heard the gunshots was on the phone with a friend at the time of the gunshots. And that phone call was confirmed to have been, had taken place at 8.33 p.m. Confirmed by phone call records. Now the 911 call from Thomas came in at 8.45 p.m. So there are 12 minutes between the shots and the 911 call. So... The big question, what exactly happened in those 12 minutes? Hmm. Number three, Thomas claimed that he was shooting at Mike Miller multiple times in the hallway on the way to the garage. He basically said he like emptied it out, like he shot Mike Miller a bunch of times. That was clear. Um, but there were no shell casings found in the hallway, no blood found in the hallway. It was very clear that nobody had been shot in the hallway and there were not missing any shell casings either. Things were clearly very different than Tom was trying to have people believe. He also said that he um, 
that he shot him before the ski mask came off, but the ski mask did not have any holes in it, did not have any blood on it. Um, it did not appear that he was wearing the ski mask when he was shot, Mike Miller. Um, so there was a second interview with Thomas Randolph. Um, so, so far he's had an interview, he's in the walkthrough, and now this is a second interview. And this occurred about 26 days after the murders. In this interview, Thomas was very animated, very chatty. Um, when asked to describe himself, he described himself as a cocky motherfucker, which that's true. Um, during this interview, they found out a lot about him. Um, they found out that he used to work with defense attorneys. He was like an investigator for defense attorneys and really wanted to be an investigator, or sorry, a, a, a defense attorney. He said that he really felt that he should have been part of the dream team and if you don't know who the dream team is that is oj simpson's defense team they were a pretty badass team but like i don't know kind of says something about a person you know um thomas told investigators that the day when they well, like when they asked why mike might have robbed him he said that is probably because mike knew that that day he'd taken out twenty thousand dollars of cash um and they're like, why did you need that? And he's like, oh, I just always have lots of cash. It's just a thing I do. Here's a little bit from the interview just to get a little sense of this guy. And you tell me, does he remind you of Joe Exotic? I like you. You I don't like, by the way. I don't know why, I just don't like you. I've talked to you more than anybody I've talked to in Las Vegas since I've been here rather than Sharon and Pauline and the grandkids. So you're like my best friend, dude. Yeah. Shouldn't have secrets. Right? Shouldn't have secrets? That's right. What do you mean? Everybody's got secrets. Something else, guys, because you know what? Unless you come and just tell me I'm under arrest or you just really need to talk to me to clear something else up, I'm probably not coming back out here for at least 30, 40 days. You think we should tell you you're under arrest? No, because if you are, you f***ed up. You f***ed up. This one's an easy one for you. This one's an easy one for you because the forensics is there. It has, uh, it has its issues. It's not that I don't trust you, but I think I'll take the back with you. Just an extra dig. Is your wife good looking? What do you think? To kill for. It's just, to me, very clear from even these limited interactions what a narcissist this man is. The boys were on the case, and they began to look further into Mike. They found out that Mike had met Thomas Randolph at a convenience store months back, or maybe, I don't know how, how long, but, you know, a while back. And that is where Thomas offered Mike you know, to do some work for him around the home, you know, general handyman stuff. He got to the point where Thomas was paying him $600 a week to do whatever general stuff. The two of them also kind of hit it off as friends, and Thomas seemed to really kind of take the lead in their relationship. Now, the boys spoke to Mike's two brothers. Both were absolutely shocked that Mike would have killed someone. They could not fathom it. Um, one of them was, was so upsetting. He was like so emotional and like he could not control himself because he was like, there's, there's just no way my brother would have done this. It doesn't make any sense. The brothers, one of them also 
so the first one said that Mike had met a man named Tom or Thomas and like was doing work for him and that they they were like pretty good friends. Mike, by the way, had moved to Las Vegas recently and was, so was looking for work. And so that's, this whole thing really worked out. And, you know, he found somebody in Las Vegas that he could be friends with and get to know, et cetera, et cetera. The second brother um, said he didn't know the name of the guy, but said that he was becoming good friends with a white guy who gave him a gun for no apparent reason. Now, Rob and Dean also found a woman, a friend of Mike's, named Judy Archie. And she told them that Mike told her that he'd met a white guy out in Las Vegas who'd asked him to kill his wife. Interviews being conducted at Judy Archie's residence, 9.26 hours. Judy, you understand this interview is being recorded? Is that okay with you? Yes, sir. You were friends with Michael Miller, is that correct? Mm-hmm. About how long ago did you meet him? It's about 15, 16 years. Okay, so you're pretty good friends with him? Mm-hmm. And at some point he moved out to Las Vegas? Yeah, he said he was moving out for a better life. And what did he tell you? Did, did, did he get, give you a call after you got settled in? What was he talking to you about? He always talked about the, the man he met at the store. And I kept telling him, I said, Mike, something ain't right about you, man. Again, he called. He said, he told me he wanted me to kill his wife. I said, for what? He said, I don't know. He told me he, he wanted me to kill his wife. He said that, that that's all that man was talking about. Killing his wife, killing his wife, you know? And I did not understand it. You know, and I was like, Mike, go to the police with this. Did he, did he ever tell you anything that he was supposed to get out of that? I mean, no. what, what would he, what would it benefit Mike to kill this man's wife? I don't know what he was going to get Mike because he never did say. Okay, he never told you about uh-uh. Are we starting to see what's going on here? With this new information, the boys kept going. Dean and Rob kept digging. And meanwhile, Thomas Randolph had presented a will from Sharon, which stated that she left everything to him, including the house, Uh, which she'd owned, and he was ready to come home and clean up the crime scene and sell the house. And of course, he wouldn't want to continue living in it, so he was going to sell it. But Thomas's plans were foiled when Colleen, Sharon's daughter, presented another will of Sharon's that had come from one of Sharon's best friends and was more recent and more valid. It turns out that not long before Sharon's death, she asked her friend to accompany her to write out a new will. The two of them got it notarized together and Sharon asked her friend to hold on to it in the event that anything ever happened to her to then give that will to Colleen. And that was the real will. This will left everything to Colleen and nothing to Thomas. So when Thomas was notified about this, he was not happy. And he... Uh, he he had been very nice to Colleen before, um, and you know Colleen was immediately suspicious of him, but was pretending not to be until this whole will thing got sorted. And once this all came to light, he was very nasty to her. You know, it's really weird. We sat there and we talked about the house. I can see it in your eyes. You know, the lies to your I mean, as far as I know, he's still in Utah. He might be on his way to Vegas now. I stopped talking to him. 
This is the very last message, maybe two, three days ago. Hi, this I was is actually it. calling to apologize for getting so upset with you, but that's what happens when people look me in the eyes and lie to me. Now the lawyers are going to get all the money. Because I still get half the house because I'm married to your mama. Um, I forgive you. I'm sorry I called you bad names. See ya. Bye. He didn't realize I had a will. Yeah, he thought he was in control and in charge of everything. He doesn't like it when a woman takes control away. So police and lawyers got involved and Colleen was able to gain control of the house. She had the locks changed and Thomas was not even allowed to go in and get his stuff. It all kind of came to a, a halt on one day where she was there and he tried to come and um, Dean and Rob were there to tell him like, no, you can't go in. Um, and Thomas was was not not having it but that was that was the ruling and there was nothing that he could do about it now that solved one problem for colleen um, but now she had this freaky thomas randolph character on the loose and he was super pissed at her and she was five months pregnant so naturally she was terrified dean and rob did everything they could to help colleen um, but there was little they could do about arresting him because they didn't have enough at the time. Everybody was convinced that Thomas was behind Sharon's murder and they really wanted to go and get an arrest warrant. So off these guys went to the Clark County District Attorney's Office to make their case. And this was their theory. So they believed that Thomas Randolph had married Sharon with the intention of taking out multiple life insurance policies on her and then having her murdered so that they could cash out. What a Dateline episode. Thomas had taken out four separate policies on Sharon, totaling $360,000. They believed that Thomas had met Mike Miller and essentially groomed him to the position where Tom could convince Mike to kill Sharon for $20,000 or kind of maybe did it under threat. We don't know. But the real plan ended with Tom double-crossing Mike and killing him so that he didn't actually have to pay the $20,000. And I mean, probably also just to like keep it under wraps, you know. Two can only keep a secret if one of them is dead. Now the DAs were interested, but they were not convinced. They did not think that there was enough solid evidence. They needed more. These DAs, they always want more, 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 you know that? You ever watch Law & Order SVU? Somewhat defeated and kind of feeling like they were racing against the clock here, they decided to dig into Thomas Randolph's past to see what they could uncover, see if there was anything that would help them. There was so much stuff. They found so much stuff. Okay, this is, it's crazy. First of all, Thomas Randolph had not one, not two, not three, but six ex-wives, including Sharon. And how many of them were dead? Four, including Sharon. So let's start at the beginning with Thomas's first wife named Catherine Thomas. And Catherine is still alive. Interesting, her last name is Thomas and his first name is Thomas. Anyway, Catherine and Thomas met when Catherine was 18 years old and still in high school. And Thomas was 20 years old. They fell for each other fast. They were married in 1975. Catherine, uh, and Thomas went on to have two children together, a boy and a girl whose names were Justice and Kristen. Interesting. Now things with Catherine and Thomas became very rocky over the years. Thomas was never able to hold a job and surprise, surprise, he began to be a lot more himself. 
He started cheating on Catherine a lot. He also started selling drugs. He was super hot-headed and he would boil into a rage over silly things, usually aimed at Catherine. Catherine said that Thomas would get arrested often, um, but that his parents would always bail him out. Cute. Catherine soon realized what a mistake she'd made in marrying this crazy man and having his children. She said that he was never physically abusive, but that he was very psychologically abusive and controlling, and she described him as very narcissistic. Now, amidst the chaos, Thomas took out a life insurance policy on Catherine, surprising no one. Catherine was no fool, and she mustered up the strength to leave Thomas and filed for divorce in April of 1983. After the divorce, Catherine dated and went on to marry a man named Steve. Although Steve was not exactly new, he had actually been a friend of Tom's before marrying Catherine, and Thomas Randolph was not pleased about that. And I mean, yeah, that is a little shady, but he seemed like he was a giant dick to her, so I don't know. I don't feel bad. Thomas was very openly upset with Steve, and actually he told Steve that this was the equivalent to stealing meat out of another man's freezer. So that's just what, <laughs> that is how Thomas Randolph views women. Not, not surprisingly. All right, I made this mug, by the way. Anyway, okay, look, th this is a huge difference between men and women. Like men can have like these kind of weird things go down between them and still kind of remain friends in a way. I feel like women don't or can't do that. Um, so Steve and, and Thomas remained, I guess, at least acquaintances, if not kind of friends or whatever. And that is when Thomas began to start to bring up the topic of money and what Steve would be willing to do for money. The topic of what you would do for money came up a lot. And eventually, he went as far as asking Steve if he would ever be willing to kill somebody for money, if he was sure that he would get away with it. Steve said that Thomas asked him on several occasions, and does this sound a little bit familiar to anyone else? But that is when Steve had enough and he shut Tom down entirely, and Thomas never got to who he intended to murder. But to this day, Steve believes that if he had followed through and, you know, uh, got in on the plans, that he would have asked him to kill Catherine. Now, I also think it's possible that he would could have asked Steve to kill his next wife which was Becky Galt. Thomas's next wife, Becky, the two of them were married in the same year, actually like super, super close to when he and Catherine were divorced. Um, and they, you know, in an instant got married. This is Tom's MO. Becky and Thomas lived together in Clearfield, Utah, which I believe is where Tom's parents were living at the time as well. Now, Tom and Becky's marriage went on to end in Becky's suicide. Dean and Rob went to Clearfield to talk to Becky's friends and relatives, and they had a lot to say. Most importantly, they did not believe for a second that Becky had killed herself. They spoke to Becky's aunt, her name was Rosalie Alred, and she said that she did not like Thomas from the get-go. She found him an arrogant smartass, and that very much checks out, and it's kind of how he described himself too, so checks out. Becky told them that like his other marriages, 
Thomas Randolph was cool at first, he was romantic, he was nice, and she was completely charmed by him. Thomas told Becky that he was working at a law firm at the time and he was working toward becoming an attorney. But soon, as he always did, he started to reveal his true nature and he started to do some really messed up things. He uh, was still into selling drugs and doing them. Friends and family of Becky also claimed that Thomas intentionally got Becky hooked on drugs herself. Now, Rosalie said that Becky had confided in her that Thomas had started, he, he had this weird situation where he had this room in his basement that he kept locked and wouldn't let her in. And every so often he would bring a woman home, have her in that room, and he would make Becky watch him have sex with this woman. Again, he was exhibiting some very controlling, very emotionally abusive behavior towards his new wife and everyone could see it. Now, Becky, on the other hand, was described as a lovely woman, and many years later, it was clear that Becky's friends and family were still very much hurting from her death, and I'm sure many of them were carrying around a lot of guilt, you know, wishing that they had done something to help her, to help her get out of the situation, or whatever. And, of course, they shouldn't, but that is just how people work. Now, before Becky's death... Many of them did ask Becky why she didn't leave Tom, and she always told him that she was afraid of what he might do. She was very, it was very clear that she was afraid of him, and she stayed with him out of fear. And on top of all this abuse that Becky was apparently suffering at the hands of her own husband, he also took out not one, not two, but three life insurance policies on her. You guys, this is a giant red flag. In what scenario does your spouse need to have three life insurance policies on you? I will tell you, none. If somebody has three life insurance policies on you, there is a 100% chance that they are going to murder you and you should run. Okay? Now, during the time leading up to Becky's death, it was clear that the couple were experiencing some major financial issues. Rosalie said that they'd approached her to borrow money to pay their bills. But what did they do with this loan from Becky's aunt? Well, Thomas used all of it to pay off the premiums on the three life insurance policies on Becky and nothing else. Red fucking flag, you guys. Becky knew that she was in trouble and according to her friends, she did have a plan to leave. She was actually gearing up to leave and had gone home to gather some things and we'll hear a little bit more about, you know, a warning she may have received, but she never made it out. In November of 1986, Becky was found dead in her own bed, which was a waterbed, by the way, in her home with a single gunshot to the head. There was a suicide note found in the kitchen. Now, Thomas Randolph went on to claim that just the day before, Becky had threatened to kill herself. That's convenient. And only 13 days after her death, Thomas Randolph collected $500,000 in insurance, and Becky's death was ruled a suicide. Now, there were many people that had a problem with this ruling, including the lead investigator in the case, Dick Martin. Dick felt that there was no way that this could have been a suicide. He told Rob and Dean when they went on to interview him that the imprint of the barrel of the gun on the side of Becky's head was upside down, which meant that she would have had to have an extremely awkward position she would like, she would have had to, and it was like kind of far back. Like it didn't make sense. If you're going to shoot yourself in the head, you're going to do this. You're not going to be 
going like this and have the gun turned upside down. He felt it didn't make sense. When Dick was investigating, like the whole thing happened, and then a few days later he went back to what he assumed would be a secured crime scene, only to find that Thomas Randolph had cleaned everything up and essentially ransacked the home before taking off with all of his life insurance money. Interestingly, things did not end here for the Becky murder case. You see, there was a man named Lieutenant Scott Connolly from the Ogden, Utah Police Department who ended up inserting himself in the case. You see, Ogden is where Thomas Randolph fled after Becky's death. And in Ogden, Thomas Randolph had been trying to slither his way into the drug scene there. He wanted to become a major drug dealer. Scott even said that Tom was going around and telling people to call him Tony Montana is one of the most pathetic things I've ever heard. This is a grown-ass man, you guys. A full-grown man. Apparently, he was super obsessed with Scarface, which, yes, is another red flag, ladies. Great movie, but the obsession with it is a red flag. So Scott had Thomas Randolph on his radar, and obviously, he was getting on Scott's last nerve because he would be getting on anybody's last nerve because he's very annoying. And that is when Scott was approached by a woman who said that her husband had been approached by Thomas Randolph years earlier, and Thomas had asked him repeatedly to kill his wife in exchange for money. Again. And this man was a man named Eric Tarantino. Now, Thomas Randolph had befriended Eric Tarantino a few years before Becky's death. At the time, Thomas was working as a foreman at a cabinet shop that Eric was also working at. And as we've seen from Thomas before, he began to groom Eric, clearly with this intention of having him kill his wife in mind long before ever bringing this up. The two became very close. Eric seemed to really look up to Thomas. He thought Thomas was really cool, probably thought he had great hair. Lord knows, but he did seem to idolize Thomas which makes me respect Eric just a little bit less. So he got Eric implicated into a lot of his illegal activities. Along the way, Eric, you know, met Becky and grew to like her very much. He often had dinner with the couple. They were all friends. Thomas began slowly introducing the idea of having Eric kill somebody for him. And when Eric initially said, no, I don't want to kill your wife, uh, he said that Thomas said to him, quote, you know way too much to say no, so it's either you or her, end quote. So that's when Eric started to realize, like, shit, I've gotten myself really involved in this guy, he's got stuff on me, and now he wants me to do this, and it's not so simple to just say no. Eric says that he never intended to go through with any of these murder plots, but he feared what Thomas would do if he rejected his idea, so he went along with it. The two began to start plotting the murder. And according to Eric, there was many plans. They would make plans, they would act out the scenarios and like weird scenarios. For example, one plan had the three of them going on a camping trip and in the middle of the night, they would fake an accident where they would leave the truck in neutral and let it run over Becky while she was sleeping in the tent. Um, and like they went and practiced this and they discussed an arson scenario for like a month at a time. Like just bizarre. They, it, it, there was many of these plots like accidentally shooting her, whatever. 
Eric said that he felt like a hostage and that he truly felt like Thomas was going to kill him. And that wasn't crazy because according to Eric, Thomas would would do these like really kind of shady things that were like life-threatening. Like he would, um, you know, aim a gun, a gun at him and tell him it was unloaded, but then shoot it. And it was like, clearly it was loaded. Or one time he said that Eric went up to him with a rag full of chloroform and like was threatening to use it on Eric, but then didn't. Eric said that Thomas was very close with a lot of people in town, including like, you know, higher up people, judges and lawyers and police officers who he dealt drugs to. And he dealt like all types of drugs, um, you know, pills and cocaine and whatever. Um, so Eric said that he really felt he had nobody to turn to and he didn't know what to do. Now, on the flip side, he'd also gotten really close with Becky and he liked her and he was obviously fearing for her life. So finally, after mulling it over for a bunch of time, he called Becky and he told her everything and he told her where in the house Thomas Randolph kept the life insurance policy documentation and he said that she needed to get that and she needed to run and then Eric booked it out of there and one year later Becky was dead. So it's really unfortunate because I kind of when I first you know watched through and and gotten all the information I thought that it was that he told her and she was like getting ready to leave and then didn't make it but like clearly he told her all this stuff and then she stayed for a year and then ended up being suicided or I guess that's not really being suicided but dying so after hearing about all of this Scott Conley was very intrigued and he had Thomas Randolph arrested and charged for the murder of Becky Randolph in 1988 two years after her death Thomas Randolph was put on trial in April of 1989. Now, Eric Tarantino was set to be the star witness, which was terrifying for him, of course. And when Thomas Randolph became aware of this, he got on the phone with somebody that he thought was a hitman, hoping to have Eric murdered. But this hitman was actually an undercover cop, as is usually the case. So Eric was then put under witness protection, and thankfully he did not end up getting murdered. Now, during the trial, the defense was sticking to the idea that Becky's death was a suicide. And Thomas Randolph, if you can believe it, and you definitely can, testified on his own behalf. And is, is anybody surprised at that? Because no, of course he did. He got up on the stand and said that Becky was crazy, that she was addicted to drugs, and that she was very mentally unstable. And that's kind of hilarious because literally everybody else says the opposite. Catherine, Tom's first wife, also testified that she'd spoken with Becky about Tom before her death, that, she, um, that Becky had reached out to her for help. Um, it's very crazy to me that um, the jury then on went on to find Thomas Randolph not guilty and and uh, go with that Becky's death was in fact a suicide. And I mean, I think this was a very circumstantial case. I don't think there's any way there was no forensics, and that's clearly why it ended that way. And everyone was extremely upset, obviously. However, they still had this conspiracy to commit murder charge after that little incident where he tried to have Eric killed via undercover cop. There was nothing Thomas could say to wiggle out of that one, thankfully. 
He ended up pleading guilty and was sentenced to 18 months in prison, which, if you ask me, is kind of short for trying to have somebody murdered. I mean, am I crazy? A year and a half? That's nothing. It's it's crazy to me the difference in in sentences for a first-degree murder charge and an attempted murder when the intention is the same. It's just, did you succeed, you know? Like, if you intend to kill somebody, but, like, through no fault of your own, you couldn't get it done, you still had the same intention as as if the case that you killed somebody. So 18 months versus, like, a life charge, like, I don't know. That doesn't – does anybody know the reason for that? It seems crazy to me. Anyway, once Thomas had served his time – he then turned around and sued the Davis County, Clearfield County PD, and Ogden County PD for libel and slander. And they settled with him and gave him money. Which is nutso cuckoo. He ended up making money off this. He served 18 months. He got the life insurance policies for Becky. He got, uh, and then he got money by suing all these different counties. I tried to find information on this libel case. I couldn't really find much, but he did get a settlement. And then once again, Thomas Randolph was off and free to go about his business. So that's where I'm going to end it today. Um, there is a lot more. Um, there's a lot more. There's more wives to get to. And... Um, I will reiterate, this case is yet to be finished. So please come back next week to hear about part two. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Who's Knocking Podcast, Twitter at Who's Knocking Pod. You can email me hello at Who's Knocking Podcast.com. I would super appreciate it. I keep forgetting to mention in the beginning. Uh, but super appreciate if you'd subscribe to this channel or like or comment or what have you. Um, Give me suggestions and check out my newsletter, which is called Grim Weekly. You can find it at grimweekly.com. Newsletters come out on Friday. It's just a little true crimey ting and it's fun. And stay safe because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.